What's up everyone, Corey Carter here, and I can't believe that we've made it to day three of our little mini-series with Cashflow Tactics. Uh, day one and day two was Ryan D. Lee, but today we are joined with Brad Lee Gibb. Ron, I can't believe we were so lucky to have these two guests. Yeah, when we first started this journey, uh, we didn't realize this was going to happen, and frankly, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation with Brad and you know me, I'm a huge Marvel fan and for him to uh, compare us to Dr. Strange a little bit, everyone's got to stay tuned to figure out what I'm talking about. And we also started going through Cashflow Tactics five day free challenge. For more info, go to cashflowtactics.com. But for now, let's get to it. If you are like we were, stuck and searching. There is so much out there. We were searching and searching. So we decided to follow our passion of helping people achieve their goals, helping others that are feeling stuck. On this podcast, we plan to cut through all that noise, give you actionable steps from highly successful people so that you can have better foresight through others' hindsight. This is Hindsight Hacking. Welcome, everyone. Welcome back to Hindsight Hacking. And we are joined today by the one and only Brad Gibb, co-founder of Cashflow Tactics. And he is a former Goldman Sachs uh, working in the investment division until he had his own Jerry Maguire moment and decided it was time to move on. Brad, I am so excited to hear everything that you have to share with us and uh, talk about all the math and all the spreadsheets that I know you love and I uh, can't wait. Corey and Ron, thanks for having me on, man. When you shared with me the name of your podcast and we talked a little bit about it before going on air, I was like, oh man, that's, that's a cool idea. And I was just thinking a little more about it. Like, um, have you ever seen the Doctor Strange movie? Did you guys oh, yeah. see that one? Oh yeah. Where like he could, he could see all the different paths in the future of all the different like, I feel like my brain wants to work that way. That's why I build spreadsheets. I'm like, I just want to know. So like when I'm in a decision, I'm trying to go down as many of those paths as possible. But to have a podcast that basically like allows you to do that, that is a powerful, like you're giving people a superpower like Dr. Strange by letting him see, hopefully at least a little way into their future by seeing all these possible decisions. That's that I was geeking out on. That's way cool. So I'm excited to be here. This is fun. I'm excited how you explained our show. So that is way cool. I'm a huge Marvel fan. So I was like, uh, yep, sweet. <laughs> yep. This is your Dr. Strange little thing in the, the gem in the deal. And that's, that's what your podcast is. It's great. Exactly. No, that's great. Um, you know, I, I know Corey and I were talking about jumping into your, your five-day challenge. And, and we are so excited about just what your company is doing for other people. But for the people that don't, know who you are. Can you give everyone a quick little backstory about you? Yeah. So we'll go, like I said, rewind. I'm sure everybody wondering like, what the heck do you mean by Jerry Maguire moment at Goldman Sachs? Right. So, um, I would, I, I, I'm a self-identified super nerd. I like spreadsheets and numbers probably more than I like people. Um, and, and so when I, when I went to college, this, this, this is how bad it is, right? I knew I want to do something business related, but didn't know what, and then I just looked at being like, okay, what's the hardest program that they have? 
and that's the one I'm going to do. So I did the accounting program um, at Brigham Young University, and that's, I mean, top three program in the nation, super, super challenging program. And that wasn't enough that in addition to getting that master's degree there, I decided to get it just because it was interesting to me. I'm, I'm the guy that went year-round college, not to graduate sooner, but to get in all the classes that I couldn't fit in my normal schedule. That's how backwards I am. But I ended up with an accounting degree, a statistics degree, and an economics degree um, in that five-year time period that I was um, going to college. And that positioned me to be able to um, get a job at Goldman Sachs, which I was super excited and grateful about. But what I didn't know is right upon graduation and entering the, this job with Goldman Sachs, it was late 2007, which if we all remind, rewind back in time as to what was going on, we were like headed off a cliff. And I love the phrase, falling feels like flying until you hit the ground. So we were in free fall. Nobody really knew it until, of course, we hit the ground and realized, wait a minute, we were not flying, but falling. Um, and I had a front row seat to the whole thing. I was downtown New York City when Lehman, like the day Lehman closed, like overnight, that was the, that was the no going back. We are in a full-fledged crisis is, is the day that Lehman Brothers literally overnight went out of business. Um, our building was right next door to theirs. And we got off the subway, we're walking into work and hundreds of people were filing out with cardboard boxes. And we're like, what? in the world just happened, right? And we spent the next week, not even at our desk, sitting in the lobby, just watching the news, wondering, are we the next shoe to drop? Like, why was it Lehman and not us? I mean, Lehman and Goldman were kind of the, the poster childs of Wall Street at the time. And so that, that was a big, real shock and wake up for me because I had had a good job. I had a good education. I had a good job. I thought this was supposed to be now my chance to climb the ladder and have all the security that was promised to me. And the, the, the scary part was, is I knew I was on the chopping block. I was new. I'd been there less than a year. I'm the first one to be out the door as they need to shrink down. But what really woke me up is I had conversations with my manager who'd been there two years and he was just as scared as I was. And then the manager, his manager had been there five years and he was just as scared as the both of us. And people that had been there 10, 12, 15 years were just as scared and didn't know what to do as me, the new guy. And I was like, well, if the dude here 15 years is just as scared as I am, why am I going to sit here for 15 years to be in the same spot I am now? Right. And that was my Jerry Maguire moment of like, wait a minute. I, I, you know, I, I'd been raised an entrepreneur, but sort of didn't know it. I grew up on a family farm, which there's no more entrepreneurial than like, here's a roll of duct tape and bailing wire, like, go make crops happen, right? There's no instruction manual. Everything is always breaking. Nothing, you never have enough resources or time, and you just figure out how to get it done. So I sort of was like, all right, if this whole good education and job thing is not going to work out, I just better be my own boss because at least then I can't fire myself, right? So that was the, hey, and not to mention, I... I had a front row seat to see how the sausage was made and where the bailout money was going and where money really moves. And I had like very few people at Goldman even know what's going on, but I had an economics degree so I could see into this. And it was just like, okay, between those two things, I was like walking around being like, you all see this, right? We should all probably leave and do something different, right? Okay, cool. Here we go. Three, two, one. And I was the only idiot that was brave enough to walk out the door in 2008 when all of this was happening. So 
I left there. I'd been there, you know, only about a year, uh, left to do the entrepreneur thing and have never looked back. But that, that was kind of the start to it all. Wow. That's, that's so, so great. So, you know, I, I've been lucky enough to hear a few of your uh, presentations and conversations uh, from your podcast to, to this and um, how much does 2020 right now feel like it did in 20 in 2008? Oh man, it, you know, they, they say history never repeats, but it always rhymes. That's exactly what it feels like. I mean, could I have ever thought that a, 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 a new virus was going to be the pin this time? No, I, I, I had thought other pins were coming. I was looking for other pins, but when there's a bubble in a pin and they meet the same thing happens. Right. And so, yes, it, it feels very, very similar. The speed with which things are changing, the reactions to it um, feel very, very, very reminiscent. But I'm hoping the only part that I'm still hopeful about is because it wasn't something like a fundamental issue, you know, nationwide in the economy, I'm hoping the correction doesn't have to be quite as big, right? When we can get back to work, we can get things back online. I hope that it doesn't take quite as long to get back, but it's definitely a, a very, very similar feeling and process. And I like to think about it. I think about when you were a kid riding a bike and you're going down a hill that's a little too steep for your balance. And as that handlebar begins to wiggle and you start to correct, those corrections get bigger and bigger. And it isn't until you're doing this to try to keep the bike from endoing that you're like, wait a minute, I'm in total trouble. And every time you have to correct, the next one's bigger and bigger and bigger until you face plant, right? I feel like that's what's happening is each time we go through one of these things, the reaction has to be bigger than the one before and bigger and bigger and bigger. And I'm just wondering when we're going to eat asphalt. Um, but that's, that's the way I think about it. Yeah, no, this is, this, this is new for everybody. I, I think, you know, 9-11 was a thing. 2008 was a thing. Um, and, and you're right, the corrections that we saw or the knee-jerk reactions to get it back in line, I think this one's going to be a polar shift for how people do things. And it might not be put on by someone else, but now the world is being forced in a slowdown. Slow down, you're in your house, someone's gonna have to take some time to look within themselves and go, should I be doing what I'm doing? Is this my time to change or make a difference or in, in, invent something? There was, uh, I don't remember where I saw it, uh, but during the plague, didn't some of the greatest inventions come out of that or theories? I don't remember exactly what it was. I'm gonna have to look at that, but I would love to know if that's the case because it makes sense, right? Yeah. Oh. Yes, it was. I saw the same thing. It was Isaac Newton. Yes, right? Isaac Newton. Thank Cambridge you. Was, yes, Cambridge was was shut down during the plague, and then he went out and invented algebra or whatever it was. Yeah, something right. calculus. Wasn't it calculus? calculus. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you don't know until you obviously have the benefit of hindsight, which is ironic, of what, what's yeah. going to come out of this particular scenario. But I think it's going to drastically change the world. I think even the school systems, with all the schools shut down, 
I think people are going to relook at schools and go, you know what? Are they really serving my kids in the way that I felt they were serving my kids? And, and you're going to be forced to ask the question, is this still necessary? Right. And my personality is if everyone's running in one direction, my initial inclination is to stop and be like, what? No. And then most of the time I run the opposite direction. Right. So I'm always asking that question. Like, is this really, why am I doing this still? Is it, do I still have to do it this way? But having to lock yourself in your house from a job perspective and from a schooling perspective and an education perspective and a social perspective, it's giving everybody a chance to ask that question of, well, wait a minute, do I have to send my kids to an ancient brick building for six hours a day to get them ready for life? Or I mean, it's going to almost force them to try what's been there for 10 years, right? But it's going to force them to try it and then they may never go back. I think it'd be amazing. And I actually homeschool my I actually homeschool my kids already, so this hasn't been a shift for me. But yeah, it'd be awesome. So you get the luxury of working from home, and I assume in this office of yours. Plus, you already have the kids at home. Yep. So it's not a big culture shock like it is for most of us. (laughs) And I've just been very intentional about designing my life. I mean, we run, you know, a multi-million-dollar investment firm, but. We do it out of our houses. Our team was already virtual. We had no office to close and, and evacuate from. We've, we've always made those. They were much harder decisions to make initially, but then we reap benefits from it for a long time. So yeah, I, I feel fortunate. I, obviously, that's a, not everybody can be in that situation. I feel fortunate that it really has not shifted um, much for us, and it's only reinforced um, the, the direction we've pushed to take our, our company and our clientele from the beginning. Well, let's, uh, I, I definitely want to hear more about your company and the direction that you're going, but let, let's discuss a little bit. Like so many people are being laid off right now, uh, being let go. My case is called furlough. So, you know, so many of us have this big change that we've now got to move forward through like, so what's that advice? The, what do we do now financially? What do we do once this is over and things can get back to somewhat of a normalcy? Like, what do, what's your advice for everyone? Yeah, so that's such a good question. Like, from a medical perspective, I have no idea, right? I'm not a doctor. I have, I have no idea how serious this is. I have no idea how long it's going to take. None of that. But I do know from a financial perspective, the, what has made a difference for me in not freaking out and not being in a, in a position um, where, where I'm going to sustain any major loss. And here's, so I want us to learn the lesson and then we'll take some steps toward how do we shore that up. Um, I'm actually in the process of building a house um, right now. And so I can walk out to the lot that we're building this house on and we're at the most boring stage of this build, which is the foundation right? No one gets super excited about the foundation, right? That's not what my wife is jumping up and down about being like, look how incredible this foundation is. Like, this is the part where like, can't you hurry up and get something done on my house stage, right? Yes. But if we take this as an analogy, we look at it like, I want them to take as much time as they need and do it exactly perfect because the master bathroom, which is what my wife is excited about, sits on this foundation, right? 
And with money and wealth, everybody looks the same way. They're like, oh yeah, I know I should have some savings and I know I should have a little bit of reserve and I, I know I should have some insurance. I know I should have those things in place, but investing is way more exciting, right? Trading options is way more exciting or taking advantage of this new opportunity is way more exciting. That's the master bedroom and we ignore the foundation, right? But what we've been preaching from the beginning and it's the hardest thing to sell in an up market is before you even consider trying to strive and achieve toward financial freedom, what financial freedom is built on is this foundation of what we call protection, liquidity, and a hedge. And what we have to do is we have to protect our investments from two things. The one we know about is we have to protect our investments from everybody else, right? We need some liability protection. We need LLCs. We need, we need to make sure that when the economy happens, our investments are protected from that. But the one people miss and the one that I think is responsible for probably 90% or more of the, and 90% of statistics are made up on the spot. Anyway, someone's going to make one up and you can choose to believe me or not. But 90, I'm going to say 90% of the losses actually don't come from something external. It actually comes from your investments not being protected from you. Okay. And here's the example of that. I started buying real estate in 2007. How was my timing? Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect, right? Just as we're, again, flying feels like falling. We were falling. I thought we were flying and I was buying real estate, as much real estate as I could in 2007. But I followed one rule that was different than what everybody else was doing. And sure, 2008, when we hit the bottom, that hurt. My properties all went down by 40%. But guess what? Again, 99% of the newbie investors that started out in 2007 all went bankrupt. They all lost everything and they all had to start over. But I didn't. And that's because I did one thing. I made sure my investments were protected from me. And there's two ways that I did that. Liquidity and protection. Like if, so let's go back to, sorry, let's go back to 2008. If I had had a need to liquidate my property, I would have sustained a loss, right? I would have bought a $200,000 property and had to sell it for 160, let's say. And I would be, if I needed the cash, if I needed to be bailed out of whatever was happening to me personally, I would have had to sell and take what was on the market. And that's what was happening to everybody in 08 is they personally were rocked by the crisis and they needed their money back. And so they had to sell at the bottom. Where for me, I ensured that I had plenty of liquid savings and every single piece of property I bought cash flowed. after all of my costs and my mortgage and my property management, all the things that needed to happen. So when the value dropped, all I did was say, man, that sucks. But I, I just sat back and I collected rent checks instead. And it was totally fine. And I waited and I waited through 08 and I waited through 09 and I waited through 2010. And actually I just sold that entire block of property into uh, about a year and a half ago and I tripled my money on it. But it's because I could wait through the downside. I had distanced myself sufficiently from the, from the property to where I could have some staying power in this. And I think that's what's affecting everybody in this crisis right now is no one has staying power, right? Nobody has their, their liquid reserves. And because they don't, 
they're forced to make decisions to go out and get cash. They have to sell investments. They have to change jobs. They have to close businesses. They have to do all of those things. I know I'm on the extreme end, but I live what I preach and I have to be the example. So I'm further than probably most people need to be. But I have, I have two years of my own personal living expenses in cash. Now, I don't keep it in a bank account. I keep it in some other really cool vehicles, but it's liquid to me. I could go two years and not make a dime and, and still live my lifestyle. And all of my businesses have a minimum of six months of my payroll in a bank account. That way, I don't have to lay people off. I don't have to make changes. I feel more powerful than ever because I can take all of my people and say, great, what we were doing before isn't working, but here's an opportunity. Let's all go toward it and I can fund it. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here. I mean, you talked briefly again. I'm going to go to Marvel. The superpower, right? Like your superpower, mm-hmm. like you have the ability to do what other people don't because you were thinking ahead in a way that most people will not do. I mean, even when we're talking about like everyone's life's flipped upside down because now they're homeschooling and they don't work from home. They got to figure out how to do it. Like that's not even affecting you. Um, you have protected not only yourself, but your family, which is just as important and your investments from yourself and from outside interests. Right. Yep. So that kind of leads me to thinking about your core four and your four pillars. Uh, could you, kind of tell the listeners a little bit more about those? Yes, I would love to. And I'm glad you asked because everybody says, what should I do with my money? And then when I get in to be like, well, I need to educate you first. They're like, oh, but huh, just, just tell me what to do. Right. I want the baby without the labor pains, right? And that's, about the foundation. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that is not what we do. And I'm going to issue a major warning to everybody. And it's not the typical warning your financial advisor is going to give you, which is you can lose all your money if you follow my advice. Although that's true. Um, I'm going to give you the warning of you should never take advice from anyone ever. I really don't like advice. Okay. And that sounds counterintuitive because we want to get really good advice or that's what we're told. But advice is actually disempowering. Because if, if I say, Corey, give me some really good advice. Now I have to do what Corey tells me to do. And that's, Corey can only give me advice that he's lived, that he's seen, that's, that's unique to him, right? A much more powerful question is, Corey, teach me the framework you used to get your outcome. Teach me the principles that won't ever change that then I can learn to apply to my situation. It's very, very different. Do you guys see the difference? Yeah. Absolutely. So I won't take advice from anybody, but I will look for patterns and principles and formulas, right? And that's what we teach at Cashflow Tactics is we teach the formulas and the frameworks of financial freedom. And then that once we understand those, the tactics become very, very easy. But if you just ask the question, tell me what to do, you're not empowered. Yeah, you're hoping that what they did now also in today's environment works for you, right? rather than looking at frameworks and principles that should apply if they're, if they're true principles, should apply in any market and any time to any person, right? So that's when you say core four, four pillars, that's what it is. This is what we've, through our own experience, through the experience of thousands of clients that we've worked with, and then through the mentoring that we've had from some, some people that are worth, they have lots and lots of zeros after their names, we've, we've distilled whether, whether they've called it this or not, we've sort of 
rediscovered and organized. Cause like I said, my, my superpower is really connecting dots and, and seeing the bigger picture through the smaller decisions. And so we sort of distilled all of that into, again, whether the wealthy have said it this way or not, every time I've had a conversation with a wealthy person about the core four, four pillars, they're like, Oh, that's exactly what I did. I didn't know it that at the time, right? Say it that way, or I would have described it this way, but yeah, that, that describes exactly what I did. Right. So we teach that first and then we bring like what we say is we say education team and opportunity, right? We first get the education. We understand the frameworks. We build ourselves a game plan. Then we get our team around us. Then we go look for opportunities. Cool. Okay. That's my disclaimer. So the formula and the framework is core four plus four pillars multiplied by velocity is our path to financial freedom. Okay. The core four is the first lens that we want to look at the world through. Um, cause too many people think they, they want and need more opportunity. Uh, but that's actually not the problem in today's world. Today's problem is there's actually too much information out there. It's not that I want to restrict any information out there. Like I'm glad that there's this much out there, but everything you need to know, you can just go to the Google and type it in and get your answer, right? Like the knowledge is out there, but it's, it's distilling it and organizing it. So the first lens that we want to put in that helps us focus our attention is what we call the core four. Traditional advice would tell you if you want a higher return, you have to be willing to take what? More of a risk. risk. More risk, right? And because that's been repeated so much, it makes sense. But unfortunately, it's a like 97% of the rest of financial advice. It's a total lie because here's what it's actually saying. Risk economically and statistically determined is your probability of losing money. So to make more money, you have to increase your probability of losing money. Do you guys see this weird backwards loop we get ourselves in when we believe that? Yeah, that's really, it's, it's, <laughs> the circle is, is awful. It's ridiculous, right? But if you go to the wealthy, right, here's how Warren Buffett stated the core four. He said, rule number one is never lose money. That sounds, that doesn't sound like high risk, right? And he said, rule number two is never, ever, ever forget rule number one. It's like, wait a minute. This right. is not what we are told in everyday investing. Yeah? Absolutely. Okay. So our rule that we follow before we ever look at an investment, before we ever spend any time, like my goal is to eliminate the 97 options that I don't want to follow. So I only have to spend time looking at the three that might work. I want to spend all of my time choosing between the right options and just wholesale eliminate everything that's not going to work. So this first lens that we run through will eliminate 97% of the things that you should be able to follow and leaves you with the three or four that'll work. Okay. So we look at it to say, yes, we need higher returns. Absolutely. So that we're, we're going to increase two things and we're going to decrease two things. Okay. So rather than increasing risk, right, we do need to generate better returns. But the first thing we focus on is we look at how much control in the investment we have and we have to maximize or increase our level of control. So increase returns, increase control. Then we go to the two things that we're going to decrease. We have to decrease our risk and decrease our taxes. So before we can enter an investment, we have to be able to articulate and It's a soft thing. It's not a scientific thing, but we have to be able to articulate, is the return worth it? Does it get me where I want to go? Is it sufficient? How much control do I have? How much risk am I forced to take? 
and how much do I have to pay in taxes? And we want the first two to be high and the second two to be low. And if we can check those boxes, that gives us permission to now even enter the conversation of should we do this, right? But that's the first barrier that we would eliminate. Does that make sense? Yeah. So basically, you, when you talk about control, that means I should not go to my local financial advisor and say, give me these mutual funds, right? Well, let's, let's walk through that. How much, I mean, the perception is that this financial advisor who has degrees and a fancy suit and mahogany office is somehow smart enough to know what investments we should pick. But does that guy even have any control over your outcome? No. No, I mean, no. he doesn't own the company. And, and he can't predict the markets and he can't move markets. He can't influence that in any way, right? So he's guessing right along with you, okay? He just has more prestige and letters after his name and that's really it. So you're right, that's, that eliminates all of those options that we don't have any control and we have to take all the risk. So if your financial advisor picks wrong for you, who takes the risk? We do. You do. You do. Your financial advisor doesn't pay you back for the losses that he puts you into, right? He just says, well, everyone else lost the same amount of money, so I'm off the hook. Like, that's the crazy thing about, we think we're protected in investments, but as long as we all lose together, that's protection, which is ludicrous, right? So, so you're right, the, a, a, a mutual fund does not pass the core four because it doesn't generate a high enough return for financial freedom. You do not have any control, you take all the risk and it is riddled with taxes. So I don't have, I, I don't need to get into conspiracy theory around Wall Street, although I have plenty of it. I can just move on because it's never going to get me what I want. So do we go and buy um, a restaurant and, or a, uh, some kind of retail? Like where's, where would that fall on this list? Awesome question. Okay. That leads us right into the four pillars. Okay. So everybody listening is like, okay, Brad, you sound crazy because you think you can have control and decrease risk. I want to talk about risk for just a second. There is no such thing as risk in an investment the way that we're taught. Okay. We're taught that certain sectors of the economy or certain opportunities we participate in are either risky or not risky. That's, they're, 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 that's not the way to look at risk. Risk lies with you as the investor. Because think about it, there have been millionaires made and fortunes lost in the same exact investment, right? How many people have made fortunes in the tech sector and lost bundles of money in the tech sector, right? Yeah. Both, right? Same with real estate. Some people have made millions, some people have lost everything. Risk doesn't lie in the investment, it lies in you as the investor, the person participating in it. So think about it this way. Numbers and math and spreadsheets come very second nature to me, okay? But biology never did. Like I just could not get my head around, but I am not wired for that. So I learned that very on that I need to avoid the, the, the science wing of college. But so if I was put, if I had to wake up this morning and go perform brain surgery and cut somebody's head open and try to fix stuff, I would have a lot of stress. Like that would not, I would not be in a good place. And that person with a hundred percent surety is going to die if I cut their head open, right? It's just not going to be good. So people would say brain surgery is risky, but think about a brain surgeon. Does he wake up in the morning 
freaking out that he's going to cut someone's head open and play around with it. Right? No. Right? He should be, hopefully, calm and collected and be able to calculate the probability of a successful operation. So brain surgery is not inherently risky or not risky. It is all in the person performing it, right? A brain surgeon is valuable to the world because he systematically reduced the amount of risk that is being taken to where we can get a positive outcome. Your job as an investor is to, you will get paid in proportion to the amount of risk you can reduce, not how much you can take. Okay. So you ask the question, should I buy a restaurant? Should I buy a piece of real estate? Should I invest in a hedge fund? Like what are these things? The, the middle of the core four increase control and decrease risk leads us to the four pillars. In every investment, there's four ways we can make money. Okay. And it's these four pillars that determine how much risk we have to take and how much control we actually have. Okay. So this is sort of like the next most, this is the next lens that we want to put on. And this is where we really get a layer more granular. Okay. We're only taught one way to make money. Here's how most people are used to making money. I buy a thing and then tomorrow that thing is worth more than I paid. Right. Yeah. That's all the game of mutual funds is I have because stocks have always gone up. I'll pay something for it today and it'll be worth more than what I paid tomorrow. That's called appreciation. But again, with appreciation, how much control do you have over whether that happens? None. Or how much did everyone lose over the last couple of weeks? Yeah, we're all down 30%. But the mantra is going to be, oh, Corey, don't be a Debbie Downer. The market always comes back. Just wait it out, right? But waiting it out is not the same thing as having an impact or control or decreasing risk, right? That's just a prey hope as a strategy, which I don't, I don't buy into that. Thank you everyone for joining us on day three of our mini series with Cashflow Tactics. Guests of Bradley Gibb and man, I know so many people need this right now. Man, this episode was hard to just have two takeaways. I have three written down, but I'm going to stay true to the show and give you my top two takeaways. Number one, Protect your investments from you. That was a huge eye-opener for me. Uh, I think we become our own worst enemy sometimes. And then number two, I loved his take on advice. And instead of asking for advice and trying to copy what people are doing, get their principles or their frameworks to help kind of put that into your life and where you're at currently to help you get to where you're trying to go to. Join us tomorrow for part two of this amazing interview. Uh, The amount of nuggets that you're about to hear in the next segment of this will leave you speechless. So tune in tomorrow. And as always, thank you for being the best part of the Hindsight Hackers community.